0: So if you have your Bibles or devices, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll be getting there in a few moments uh, down at verse 18. The writer of Hebrews uh, has been showing us in chapter 12 how the Christian life is like running a race. And we've been studying the the 12th chapter for some weeks now, and we will probably continue uh, and then maybe even get into chapter 13 as well. And he is showing us that the Christian life is like running a race and that we're to lay aside every weight and every sin uh, which so closely clings to us. You know, the weight and sin are not necessarily synonymous. Do you know that? Uh, Weight can be something very good, just not the best. It, It can be something that's not necessarily sinful and yet... It is a distraction and it it gets in the way. It encumbers you from running the race effectively. But, of course, sin is a moral compromise. It's something that separates us from God. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling us, lay those things aside. Put them to the side. Strip them off. Every weight and sin that so closely clings to you. And fix your eyes. Turn your eyes onto Jesus. He ran the race before you, and he's standing at the finish line. When you cross, he'll be there to greet you. We also learned that there's a great cloud of witnesses that are around us, and they've run their race, and they've completed it, and and they're in the grandstands cheering us on. And we may not be aware of it, kind of like that funny video from last week where we don't even realize we're in a race, and next thing we realize, we're crossing this finish line. But we're in a race, if you're following Jesus, you are running a race. And we've learned in this chapter that God uses everything, even hardships, especially hardships, to train us in our life. He doesn't waste any of it. And that we are called to lift drooping hands and to strengthen weak knees, not just our own, but those of anyone running the race. There's a lot packed into this 12th chapter. But one, th- one of the things that chapter 12 touches on that can easily be glossed over is just how critically important our holiness is in running this race. Our holiness is critical to being effective runners in this race that God has us on. We see it in verse 10 of chapter 12 where it says the Father disciplines us that we might, quote, share his holiness. Share his holiness. And in verse 14, we're admonished to strive for holiness, to strive for peace with everyone and to strive for holiness. And then he adds this, for without it, no one will see the Lord. And so it is a, it's a piece, it's a major piece of this chapter, our holiness and how it lines up, and how we're able to share His holiness that makes us able to see the Lord. And we're going to especially see it in these next few verses, starting in verse 18. For you do not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. Well, that escalated quickly. Man, what is going on here? I thought we were running a race. And now we're on a smoking, burning mountain with a tempest all around us. Actually, we're not, because it said we're not coming to that mountain. But nonetheless, this is what's described. And what is it that's happening here? Well, the writer of Hebrews is referring to one of the most significant moments in Israel's history. And it is something that his Jewish readers would have been quite familiar with. And in fact, if you've studied the Bible, if you've been in church some time, you're probably familiar with it too. He is describing the Exodus The Exodus story, where Moses leads the children of Israel out of slavery, where they had been in Egypt, and into a wilderness encounter with the Lord of hosts at Mount Sinai. This is what the writer is describing for us. And it was wonderful and pivotal for the nation of Israel, but it was also frightening. And it left them trembling. In fact, they were a trembling mess in the midst of it. If you want to, you can thumb back with me to Exodus chapter 19. You don't have to. It'll be on the screen. But we can see kind of the firsthand account of this. Exodus 19, and we're going to go at verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. And be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. To save time, we're going to skip down to verse 16. And so on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast. So that all the people in the camp trembled. I don't know that we read those things. And I don't know if you feel it. I wish we could feel it this morning. I wish that we could all experience the emotion that's behind this moment. Because we all too often are too cerebral. And God has to smack us in the face a little to get our emotions to be ignited. I I watch this with so many different times for myself where I just kind of pathetically come intellectually. But I want to feel it. I want to feel what they felt. They trembled. What they experienced was so frightening that they thought they were going to die. They were trembling before the Lord. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And he had told them in earlier verses that for these days of consecration, don't you dare touch the mountain. In fact, set out a border, a boundary for the people, and no animal, no beast, no person, if they touch the very edge of the mountain, they're to be put to death. It's serious business here. And so now Moses is bringing them out to the foot of the mountain. I don't know about you, but I'd be a little nervous at this point. I've already been told if I touch it, I'm going to die. Is it the second or the third day now? Uh, is that a trumpet I'm hearing or is that just in my head? Because I want to be real careful right now. This is serious. Now, verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Now, we, we could continue reading the chapter and into chapter twenty profound what happens. You can see how they were a trembling mess. When I read these verses, I'm reminded just how serious it is to approach the holy God. And I'm also reminded of how flippant and cavalier and even presumptuous that we can sometimes act in his presence. Our God as the writer of Hebrews is going to say at the end of this chapter, is a consuming fire. Worship in the old covenant wasn't what we've come to expect. Uh, not many goosebumps and euphoria. They didn't serve coffee out in the lobby beforehand. Uh, it seemed more mandatory than what we make it these days. Uh, It was mostly frightening, stark, and you were just hoping to get out of there alive. It was, it was serious. The sight of this mountain engulfed in smoke and fire and gloom and darkness. It says there's lightnings and thunders. It's like smoke from a kiln that is moving up into the sky. It is so incredibly foreboding. That Moses himself says, I'm trembling with fear. This is the one who has seen the the power of God move. He has witnessed the burning bush. He has talked with God over and over. And he is now trembling with fear. And it wasn't because God was evil or blustery or playing games. It's because God's people had done all those things and more. The issue with God's holiness is not that He is mean, it's that we are sinful. That's where the separation is. Because of their sin and their rebellion and their nature to wander off and kind of make their own way, and because of their hard hearts and their turning away to other things, they had to be kept at bay. They had to be consecrated, they had to be purified going through a ceremonial purification, their garments cleansed, everybody in order, not touching where they shouldn't touch, coming up to see how the Lord would address them because they were a sinful people and he is a holy God. A lot different than what we have these days. Even if they stepped out of bounds when they were allowed to approach, if they stepped one direction too far, the consequences would be severe. You know, our translation for the word holiness is the Hebrew word kadosh, kadosh. And it means to cut off or to separate from everything else. To cut off, to be separate from all other things. To be holy means to be unique. It means being in a class all your own. And it means being distinct from anything that has ever existed, that is existing, or that will exist. Kadosh also means to be entirely morally pure all the time, every time. And so when you take these two elements of holiness, of kadosh, it's easy to see that God and God alone is holy. There is no other that only he is holy. We sing the song today, holy, holy, holy. There's only one you can sing that to. There's only one that's in a class all his own. It's the Lord who is holy. There is no other like him. And that's why Hannah, as Jamie spoke about a few weeks ago, She got it right when she was giving her son back to the service of the Lord, when she declared in her prayer, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. He's the holy one. He occupies space that no one else can. And we have no frame of reference to fully comprehend what he is like because there's nothing like him. There is none besides him. There is no rock like our God. Now, that is the truth, but it makes it hard to preach a sermon on holiness if you can't talk about it and try to describe it and try to give some helpful uh, handrails to understanding what holiness really means. And so that's why I'm grateful for people like Tim Mackey with the Bible Project, because he uses a metaphor that I think is very profound and can help us. It's not perfect, but it is a metaphor that helps us understand that God is holy and he is other than, completely unique. And he uses this metaphor as the sun. Now we don't see the sun out today, Uh, But there's a picture of it. Uh, The sun, that ball of gas and plasma that our eight planets orbit around. Now, if you were a Pluto protester, I know it'd be nine. But I think there's only eight from what I understand now. And since I'm not an expert in astronomy, I'm going to go with the, the Google. So, the sun is unique, at least in our solar system. Now, what's kind of wrong about this illustration is there are many solar systems, right? There are many stars. And so, but in our solar system, work with me here, okay? Come on now. <laughs> Gosh, I see y'all looking at me like, what are you talking about? I need your help. All right. So the sun in our solar system is unique. It's, it's gravitational pull. It holds our planet in its orbit. And it radiates light and heat, making it possible for life to exist here on earth. It helps plants to grow. They can't grow without that. We can't eat without it. It produces oxygen for us to live. You see how important the sun is. In our solar system, you could say the sun is holy. It is other than. It is separate from everything else in our solar system. And while the sun at 93 million miles away Is at a relatively safe distance for us. Still, on a sunny day, if I go out and stay in the sun too long, it burns me. And some of you are laughing at my pale skin right now. (laughs) It's all right, I'm taking notes. It probably burns you too, to some degree. But just, hey, just move a million miles closer to it and see what it does to you. (laughs) You don't fare so well. In fact, you're annihilated. Because the sun, while it is very good and helps us produce life here on this planet, it is also very powerful. It is also very dangerous. It's holy. Which points to this paradox about God's holiness. Because at the heart of God's holiness, his presence is not only good, but it is also dangerous. If you stand in the presence of a holy God and you stand there on your own merits, having done what you've chosen to do based in your own righteousness, you won't fare very well. In fact, you might be struck dead. You see, the effect of God's holiness is so powerful. And you see it in several verses in the Bible. I, I love the story of, of Jesus who is preaching on the Sea of Galilee and he gets out in Peter's boat. This is before he's called his disciples and he says, put out a little bit and he starts talking to all the, all the people on the seashore. And then after he finishes preaching, he says to Simon Peter, put out in the deep and let down your nets. And Peter's like, dude, I've been fishing all night long and I hadn't caught anything and trust me, I'm a professional and, but, oh, I forgot, but master, <laughs> since you said to do so, I'll do it. And so he goes out in deep and they lower the nets and that was a big deal. And as they lower the nets, they got into such a mess of fish that they couldn't pull it all in. And he had to call for the partner boat to come out. And they're pulling fish in as fast as they can. And the Bible says they got so much fish, the two boats began to sink. And Jesus is standing right there the whole time. And it dawns on Simon Peter. He's in the presence of a holy God. And he falls to his knees and he says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. That's holiness. There's another place in the Old Testament, one of my favorite stories. It's of Isaiah, the prophet. And he's caught up in a vision. It's after King Uzziah died, a grieving time, no doubt, Isaiah had been in. And he's caught up in this vision, and he sees the Lord enthroned in his temple. And he sees him high and lifted up. And the Bible says that the the train of his robe, it filled the temple. Now, we don't wear trains. I didn't come to church today with a train on. But imagine if someone who would wear a train, let's say Mimi, she'd wear a train because she's a fashion designer. She could be up here, and if her train filled the temple, that'd be a pretty long train. If it filled this whole temple. Isaiah is caught up and he sees the majesty and the power of God. And he's high and lifted up and his train fills the temple. And there are these angelic creatures. They're called seraphim. And they're interesting. They had to describe them. They have six wings, each of them. Two cover their face. And two, cover their feet. And two, keep them aflight. And this one seraphim is calling out to the other seraphim. Kadosh! 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 Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah said the sound of their voice shook the foundations of the temple. The thresholds where they were, it all began to shake and smoke filled up the room. And Isaiah said, I don't belong here. Get me out of here. This is too holy. He realized he's too close to the holiness of God. And he shouldn't be there. And Isaiah 6, 5 says... He said, Ah, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people, of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and I know that's not allowed. I should die right now. Isaiah knew to be this close to the Lord in his impure condition, representing a people of impurity. Well, he's toast. It's over. But then something incredible happens for Isaiah. One of those strange angelic creatures, the seraphim, goes over and grabs a pair of tongs and picks up a coal out of the fire that's on the altar. And he comes over and approaches Isaiah and he takes that coal and he touches Isaiah's lips. And then he speaks to Isaiah and saying this, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is remarkable. Because normally in the Old Testament, if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But in this case, we have a coal that is holy and set aside, pure, an object from the altar of God. And this seraphim, this angelic being, grabs it with a set of tongs and touches Isaiah's mouth. And instead of the angel becoming impure, Isaiah is made holy. It's the only way that he could stand. He gets up, and then he hears a voice who will go for us, And Isaiah, having now been transformed, not killed in the presence of a holy God, says, here am I. I'll go. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. And all of this gives us hope. It should give us hope. It gave the people of Israel hope that there is a possibility of a different experience, that maybe they don't have to stay on the first mountain. Maybe there's a second mountain up ahead. And surely this God, this same holy God would interact with us differently than what he did at Mount Sinai. And indeed, Hebrews 12, 22 tells us that that's the case. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, just like the first mountain is described as being terrifying and dreadful and something to be wholly feared at all points, this mountain seems to be accessible. It seems to be different than the one before. We've come not to the mountain of dread, we've come to Mount Zion the city of the living God, and to Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant, who made a way where there was no way so that we did not have to stand in dread, but we could be in faith in the presence of God Almighty. And we came to his blood, the blood which is sprinkled, which speaks louder than even the blood of Abel, the innocent boy who was killed by his brother Cain. This blood is not only For is not only shed for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, it is shed for you. It is shed for all of us. And these two mountains, Sinai and Zion, they represent two covenants. And they speak of two vastly different ways in relating to God. In Sinai, it's gloom and doom and dread. Everything says, stay away, you're not worthy. Do not draw near, but at Zion, there is joy and freedom. Everything says, come close, draw near. Christ has shed his blood and made a way, and you can be now in the presence of God. Coming close and drawing near, that is the message of the gospel it is the very message of Hebrews for multiple times you see these words come close, draw near. Like in Hebrews 4.16 where we are invited to draw near to the throne of grace. And in Hebrews 7.25 where we see he is able to save the, to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Christ Jesus and in 10, 22 of Hebrews, where we are exhorted to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And even in 11, verse 6, where we see that those who draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The writer of Hebrews wants you and I to know that there's a new mountain. There's a new way to come to a holy God that provision has been made that we could not make on our own and that there is incredible privilege everyone has when they are in Christ Jesus as a new creation that as his followers we can now draw near to God without fear and being terrified and being full of dread we can draw near we can come close We can be in his presence without the slightest tinge of fear or hesitation that we might be rejected. That's what the second mountain is all about. Mount Zion, the city of God, where Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, has made a way. It's about a relationship with him. The question for all of us is which mountain have we come to? Which mountain on which do we stand? Which mountain do we expect to see God? Because we all will see God one day. And it makes a big difference which mountain you're standing on. What I find interesting is that many Christians, though they recognize that it's the second mountain that brings them into salvation, all too often try to live on the first mountain. It's time to get off that mountain. It's time to be in the place of drawing near and seeing what he has done for us make a difference in our lives. So, which mountain do you stand on today? Let us be those who draw near to God through Jesus Christ, believing that he truly exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Amen. Donna's gonna come and we're gonna pray for you this morning and trust that the Lord and what he is saying and doing now will continue in your heart. Sweetie.
1: It's been really helpful to hear the progression of the instruction from running the race to which mountain to strengthening one another. And I I was really struck today while Chris was speaking that the commands in these set of verses are the reason we can do it. Not just because he said it, because his word accomplishes what he sends it to do but when we believe all the things these verses say about who he is it makes running our race possible it It makes pursuing holiness possible and so when I pray for us today I want to pray first that you believe these things about the living God (laughs) because if you believe Then when he calls you up, when he says, run, when he says, look at me and don't look at the chaos, (laughs) Um, when he says, be holy as I am holy, it's all possible because of him.
0: Yes, because of what he's done. Yes. Let's pray together.
1: Father, thank you for the continued revelation. That you don't just tell us something once and too bad if we don't get it, but you've written a living and eternal word. You've written it in our hearts, and you have conversations with us about it over and over again. Hmm. And we're grateful that we get more than one chance to believe. We want to find ourselves in fellowship with the living God. Yes, we do. We want hearts of flesh that you can mark upon. We do want to run. As Stephanie's encouragement today to not stop running, we do want to set aside the weight and the sin We want to look around and be able to strengthen one another and even strengthen those that aren't a part of us yet. And God, none of it is possible if we don't believe you. If we don't believe what you've said, then your commands and your promises get lost on us we become like Esau. We give up the promise for the momentary pleasure because we don't see it for what it is. That's right. So Father, I ask that you would open our eyes today. Open the eyes of our hearts that we could see you in your majesty. Like Curtis said, that we would see your glory right. and it would bypass our ability to Understand it or describe it or explain it. That's right. But it wouldn't bypass our ability to experience it. That's right. The transforming glory of God, putting coals on our lips, circumcising our hearts, causing us to believe you fully and thereby be able to live what you have commanded.
0: Yes, Lord. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is still living on a first mountain, seeing God as terrible, as cruel, seeing God as harsh and not able to understand where we are, what we face. God, the revelation of your holiness can never preempt the revelation of your grace. So I pray for anyone who is struggling with their own sin issues, their own carnality, their own place of brokenness, and wondering if God is even there to help them. I pray that the Holy Spirit would come to them now in Jesus name and show that Jesus came to make a way he didn't just come to show it he became the way and the truth and the life he lived as a man fully God but living with all that we might face never sinning once and laying down his life that we could have life in him I pray for anyone struggling today that may be here or anybody that's in our circle of friends or family, people we're praying for, may the revelation of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, be real to them, those that are struggling, that he made a new way. And I pray, Lord, that that would unlock their eyes and their hearts and their understanding to see a holy God in a whole different way, that there's a second mountain now, and we've come to that place where we can have a celebration in the presence of God, not be fearful and dread. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be that kind of people who understand that God is holy, and that God is also near, that God is other than, he's unique, he's in his own class, and yet he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is like us. I pray, Lord, that those revelations in your spirit would open people to your truth. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.